0: Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Dr. Betsy Di Salvo an assistant professor in the School of Interactive Computing at Georgia Institute of Technology and the founder of the Culture and Technology Lab. We will be talking about the different ways in which ethnicity, race and gender impact how young people engage with video games and each other. We also talk about her work with the Culture and Technology Lab, how computational technology has changed the educational space in the U.S. and about the role of the education sector in increasing diversity and access to the technology sector as a whole. We hope you enjoy it. Bexie, we're so glad to have you here on our show. And what would be the definition of technology that you would use?
1: Well, I, I think it's actually pretty open-ended. I typically think of technology really as just any tool that's used to accomplish a task. But in terms of how I talk about technology in my own work, it's probably limited to thinking more about computation mm-hmm. um, and devices that use computation. And then also devices that or Technology or tools that might take the place of computation. Actually, yesterday I teach a qualitative methods course, and yesterday one of my students asked me, "Well, if we're supposed to go observe people using technology, <laughs> what is technology?" Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was left a little bit flummoxed, but um, I, I basically said, "Like, so if you see someone using a computer, obviously that's technology. But if somebody's choosing to take notes on the back of a napkin rather than use their computer or their phone or..." Um, you know, maybe a calculator, mm-hmm. then you should also take note of that because that's technology that's sort of, um, well, it is technology that they're using, but it also is technology of interest to us because it's trying to accomplish, uh, accomplish the same task that we see people using computation. Mm-hmm. So I keep a pretty broad definition of what technology is, but most of my focus is on technology that's involved with computation.
2: Um, just for our listeners out there, what do you mean by Computation.
1: Computers basically mm-hmm. anything that is using some sort of um, intelligence through computer
0: can you tell us a bit more of how did you come up to, to have that interest and to apply it in this kind of work um, a very
1: non-traditional direction <laughs> <laughs> what I'm doing so I'm a professor at Georgia Tech in the School of interactive computing I um, but I actually graduated with a bachelor's degree in uh, from a liberal arts college in fine arts with an emphasis in ceramics. I don't do any of that stuff today. Um, I got out of college like most people do with an art degree and had to find a job that was pretty much unrelated. And I ended up working in marketing and um, project management, and a lot of that was around technology and financial services. Um, and I think that I ended up doing a lot of the, the work in that, in that field. And I worked in marketing for a decade, um, that was tied to, um, you know, digitizing logos, uh, Mm -hmm. building online forms, things like that. And I mostly did it because I was young and I wasn't afraid of using technology, even though I wasn't trained to do it at all. So it was mostly through trial and error that I taught myself at least initially how to use a computer and how to use some basic programming. It wasn't until, um, this is how life goes. I got laid off at one point in time. And so, um, and I was pregnant at the same time. I didn't realize that until a few days after I got laid. Off. So I went uh, and just looked for a job that would be something interesting that I wanted to do for, you know, the next few months, you know, six to nine months. Um, and I took a job at the University of Pittsburgh at the Learning Research and Development Center, helping manage a large uh, game development project for them. And I fell in love with the work and I fell in love with doing the research. And the work was focused on developing a game that was a mixed reality game for middle school girls to get them interested in science and technology. Mm-hmm. And I also like video games and that kind of thing. So this was a really great fit for me and something fun to do. And that actually was the work that started me into academia. I was supposed to be a six-month position and I ended up staying there for three years and I left as a research scientist rather than... <sighs> you know, a temporary project manager. Um, But I couldn't continue doing what I really love to do unless I went back to school and got a PhD. Mm. So later in life, I went back to school and got a PhD actually at Georgia Tech. And then after I finished, they hired me as a faculty member. So that's my direction into this. And so I really fell in love with this idea that I could build technology, not just as products to put mm-hmm. out into the marketplace, but actually I could build technology that helped shape young people and mm-hmm. what they were interested in. Um, and part of what we were doing is with this project with middle school girls, about um, 200 young women were working with us on this project over the course of, you know, two years. And about 50% of those young women were African-American. And while we were looking at lots of research that was talking about girls and women in um the mm-hmm. in playing video games and that kind of thing and with the idea behind much of that research is if we could get girls to play as much as boys play video games they would get interested in technology careers mm-hmm. um i thought oh i should look at the research on african americans in gaming and what i found was like nobody had done that research at that mm-hmm. point in time and this is around 2005 and um the little research that was out there was talking about demographics. And the demographics actually showed of young people, um, African American and Latino males played more frequently than any other group. But if I looked at how often they went into technology related fields, it mm-hmm. wasn't at any rate that their white nation peers were. So we, um, it made me really rethink this whole idea of like, you just get kids to play games, and that'll get yeah. them interested in technology, right? <laughs> it kind of Undercut almost everything I was doing. So I wanted to answer that question, like really what was this connection between Mm. games and an interest in technology? Because young men we were talking to said that it was games that was sparking that interest. Um, And so I did ended up doing my dissertation with young African American males to better understand this relationship with video games and to see if we could leverage them Mm. into an interest in technology. And what I found was um, with observations and interviews, that young African-American males were playing video games um, very much the way they played sports. And they were playing on console systems, not personal computers. Mm -hmm. Um, They came in and they played a lot of sports games. And so there was no cheating. There was no hacking. There was no modding of these games. Mm -hmm. They played them really as they were designed to be played. Uh, The challenge with that was then when I was talking to um, white and Asian males who had uh, an interest in computing, particularly Mm -hmm. as a college major, and who told me that video games really influenced that interest? They started telling me, I was like, how did that happen? They started telling me, well, I was modding games, I was writing strategy books, I was mm-hmm. um, getting involved with hacking games and trying to make my own games. So they really looked at video games as a piece of computation, something that could be manipulated. Mm-hmm. In contrast, the African-American males were looking at video games as Mm -hmm. something similar to sports, where you brought a strong sense of sportsmanship to it. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't cheat at playing Madden online any more than they would cheat at playing at football. Mm. So that was kind of my starting off point, really understanding how culture influences the way that we use technology in terms of asking the questions that eventually led to my dissertation work.
0: What was the difference um, between these two approaches? Where did it come from?
1: Between what to between the, approach, oh, from the, the, the type young of
0: end? yeah yeah between the type of um, attitudes they have towards technology in gaming and how they were using it what, what was the source of that difference well
1: um, i think that i i did a i did more literature review work to try and understand this than than actual field work um but i looked at the literature on african american male masculinity mm-hmm. and kind of idealized masculinities within african american culture And most of the literature that I read was saying that was very much tied to this ideal of physical uh, power and athleticism and, you know, being strong. Mm. Those were some of the things that were kind of like the ideal goals to reach for. And in contrast, when you look at sort of geek masculinity and literature that talks about geeks or Um, computer scientists and the kind of masculinity they uphold, it's very much focused on mastery over the machine. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those are the things that they uphold as like the ideal things to reach. At the same time, they sort of have a um, things that they both groups didn't want to be involved in, which I found interesting. So if we talk to computer scientists um, or when you look at that literature, this has changed since, you know, the early 2000s. That computer scientists were very much, um, focused on not spending time on their appearance, that the more time you spent on your appearance and athleticism and those kinds of things, it actually meant that you were being frivolous and mm-hmm. that was less time away from the machine. Mm-hmm. In contrast, African-American males were, um, they didn't really reject the idea that you could be involved with computing or things like that. Like that wasn't considered feminine within itself, but the idea that you weren't physically, um, Putting yourself out there physically as attractive through fashion, through dance, through those kinds of things they thought was actually a sign of not being a good man. Right. Not not attaining that ideal masculinity. Hmm. So these are in real contrast with each other. So not only was it that they were playing games differently, but they actually saw the way the other person maybe was playing the game or those other cultures and sort of rejected them as well.
0: I was wondering because that that speaks to the type of relationship people build with technology on two different levels that are equally fascinating. One is how they engage with, with that game, but, but then secondly, how does what happens behind the game influence their own sense of identity and place in the world, right? What does, it yeah. mean, what does it mean me playing this to my social network that is not
1: inside the game? Yeah, I totally agree with that. and And some of the things that we've looked at with uh, how people socialize around mm-hmm. playing video games is pretty fascinating. Um, I, uh, so for a lot of the African-American men that I talked to, they actually spent time practicing playing the video game just because it was an important part of their social life, not because they particularly liked playing mm-hmm. Madden which was the most popular game at the time. But they knew that if they didn't play up to a certain level of performance, they would be embarrassed in front of their friends next time there was a party. Yeah, So they would go home. And play, even though they hated it. Right. Like it was just it was something they had to put time into. Um, I I did a number of interviews with um, white male gamers a few years ago and talk to them about their socialization around games. And I think a lot of the stereotypes is that there's not a lot of socializing mm-hmm. around games. And what I found was actually there's the social lots. aspects yeah. of gaming was really important, mm-hmm. right? The stereotype is they're playing alone in their basement and they only talk to people <laughs> yeah. through the computer, right? Like mm-hmm. that's it. And that wasn't really the case. All of them had friends over and did, yeah. um, you know, engaged in that kind of socialization around games. Yeah. So, uh, but in, they played different games at those times, mm-hmm. but it was a really important part of what their, their identity was as a person and as a gamer. We, we
0: had a, a speaker um, come on our show a few episodes ago that talked about the gamification of wearable technology. So she was talking about, you know, wearable technology is not developed to be used um, as a game by the people that develop the wearable tablet, but actually people use it as a game. So for example, if you have something like Fitbit um, or any type of technology that is used to track and measure and give you advice people are using it to compare to each other to kind of compete against each other and and this is a part of that wearable technology the social engagement around that through gamification is actually quite important to the people that use it Um, Mm -hmm. it can also come with drawbacks especially when you look at topics such as weight loss or you know other topics that are really heavily charged Um, but but still like it, it was interesting to see the gamification and the social aspect coming in to a space that was not designed to, um, for it to be like that, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, people will make a game out of just about everything. Yeah. (laughs) So
0: I was wondering from the, from the, from the gaming perspective, would you see that as well? Like do the people that build the games, that develop the games, do they look at sociality as something that they embedded from the start or they have it in mind when they design it?
1: You know, I talked to a number of developers at EA Tiburon when I was doing this research, and they were the ones making many of the sports games that were most popular with this audience. And they were aware that um, their games were extremely popular amongst African-American males. Um, They they were not aware at all that there was different gaming practices amongst different demographic groups, Mm. um, which I found kind of fascinating. So they were actually really interested in this research. And they were also very happy because the way they designed their games to be played out of the box was the way that African American males were playing the game. So they're like, they're getting it right. They're getting <laughs> it right. <laughs> they didn't think that anybody else was. If they're trying to, you know, cheat or hack or mod the game, you're not doing it right in their opinion because this is their work, right? They yeah. want you to play it the way they designed yeah. it. Yeah.
0: So they don't see hacking as a form of kind of engagement with the game as a form of
1: no. Not those developers. I mean, I'm not, I'm certain there are others that do. I mean, if you look at something like Minecraft, the whole idea around Minecraft is it's not really a game, it's just a sandbox for you to go in and create different things. And then people have made games within Minecraft Mm -hmm. so that it has that element to it. But it's much more about the creation than it is about, um, and the modifications and things that you can do. Yeah, yeah. as
0: you spoke quite extensively about the differences, and um, and I wanted to talk a, a bit about that because diversity in in how the game is being constructed, but also in how the game is being used, and what happens to all these cultures coming into play together. That that's a, a something um, very important and very relevant today, and not just with race, but with gender and with all other types of of things so I wanted I wondered if you can speak a bit to that to the diversity um, if if diversity is something that is taking into account when the game is being developed and played um, in storylines in characters in yeah anything
1: really so I mean I think it's important when talking about these kind of issues of like how African-American males play. I mean, Mm -hmm. to think that I'm really talking about specifically African-American males and white American males at a fairly certain, you know, a range, like a decade. Mm -hmm. And I think that we can see even now that that shifted. So these cultural shifts are constantly happening Mm -hmm. in terms of defining who people are within a larger society. Um, And and we can see that with the appropriation of African-American culture into white culture, Mm -hmm. then the African-American culture changes in response to that. So it becomes a moving target, right? Yeah. so I think that it's important to keep that in mind when we're talking about diversity mm-hmm. and also the intersectionality issue yes. that this is, I mean, I always, I, I do gender studies. I just study masculinity, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of times people don't recognize that. Um, <laughs> so, but I, I mean, I also do stuff with, with women and, and look at other issues too, but, um, the, it, kind of coming back to it in terms of our people designing for it in term in game companies, mm-hmm. I think that it is slightly better than it was a decade ago that we now see games that are actually have more feminine female protagonist. Um, yeah. There was a census that was done, I think about 10 years ago, maybe less, maybe a little more than that. Um, that looked at uh, what the characters were in video games and there was, I think, less than, you know, less than one percent of the female characters were Hispanic, right? Mm-hmm. And then actually, there was an overrepresentation of African American male characters because if you look at the sports games, yeah, both basketball and football, yeah, um, they have an overrepresentation of African American males. But otherwise, almost all of the, I should say, all the majority of the, the players that you could play within any video game were by far white males. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: And, you know, even when they do, I remember I, I sometimes I play Diablo with my boyfriend um, in our spare time, and I always complain about the choices of clothing that I have for my female characters. The the female visual de- depiction of those characters, because it's hyper-sexualized, um, one. And secondly, it doesn't give me any agency over influencing any of that you know so and i was wondering if if this could be a, a good segue into the second topic that that we were mentioning earlier which is how do you construct these extremely diverse and sensitive narratives um including the people that are playing the game, you know, getting them, giving them the option to co-create with you, because in that way, you're also recognizing how complex all this topic is.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that if I had the answer for how to make a game like that, I'd probably be making a lot more money right now. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I do look at trying to do that within uh, learning environments, not mm-hmm. necessarily particularly games. So technology learning environments, so I'm, I'm Often developing. So we work a lot with uh, um, within my lab. We also work a lot within the maker movement and trying to develop educational um, technology for people to use in classrooms so that they can help uh, young people build circuits and um, program Arduinos and things like that. Uh, to build devices, whether that be wearable devices or you know just Internet of Thing type of devices, and we try and make it so that the students can build real things that impact their real lives about the things that they're concerned with. And so often I see maker type activities that are, um, it, it's kind of like uh, they, they call it with 3D printing. There's a big push in 3D printing. And a lot of times the only thing the kids come out with is a keychain, right? And it's just like not, you, you need to make it a little bit more than a keychain, not just because a keychain simple, but also you need to give a little bit m- more power to the students to develop what's important to them. So we've been trying to adapt and uh, modify kind of a meta design approach to how we design this curriculum. So we want the teachers to implement a curriculum that leaves the students as designers of their own experience to some degree, and the challenge with this is particularly with the maker movement is if we leave it too open there's so much technology that teacher would have to know to accommodate each student with each crazy project they think of but if you leave it too closed then the students can't really build what's important to them and also students aren't very good designers initially, they need help designing too. So sort of this meta design approach scaffolds the design process for the students, limiting some of their choices, and also asking them questions about what's important to them and what do they value. Um, One of the programs we have is around Day of the Dead, uh, interactive puppets. So we start off the project um, asking the students to write about someone who in their lives who has died. And why they were important and some things that they remember about that person. And we leave it pretty open so they can ask them questions about, um, they can talk about like a a character in a movie who died, right? Or their dog. Like it doesn't have to be super emotional, right? But it does end up being something that the students value a lot, that conversation and being able to talk about those things. And then we have them build uh, interactive sculpture, device, puppet that really can speak to that the inputs of what was the thing that triggered that person that made that person react to the world around them and what was kind of an output that that person did. Did they sing? Did they say comforting words? Did they pat you on the back, right? So to make an interactive sculpture that somehow represents that is the end goal. So it's pretty restricted in terms of what they can actually build. We give them certain devices. um, And we really scaffold their way through this design process but keep it focused on something that they value, right? Right. And we can't predict what it is that they're going to value. Um, but it, it, it leaves enough openness and yet enough constraints. So that's what we're trying to do with projects that we're working on these days. And I don't know how to do that in a game, though.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, like, with education technologies, I really love what you're doing here. Because, like, I have an experience from when I was a kid. I wasn't the smartest one Well, really, wasn't that smart. So I got put into um, one of those um, learning places to help me learn better. What they used was like interactive games. But Mm -hmm. um, what it ended up doing was that I felt that I was stuck in a seat by a computer with everyone ignoring me, kind of like, I think it was just them, their design. But that kind of leads on to this other question we ask everyone is like this negative view of technologies and perhaps would you say like some people's views that technology can sometimes be evil or take away from like the traditional educational relationships but before you answer that i just want to say that i've also had good experiences with educational technologies too <laughs> and um especially like Duolingo and all that stuff so
1: yeah i think that it's um I think that it is really hard to understand what that line is with too much technology. I do like doing the maker activities inside of the schools, or after school programs, because it does give hands on experiences to the kids with technology. And so much of the time, when they're told you're going to learn about computing Mm -hmm. or technology, it's just about sitting behind a computer with no interaction with anyone else at all. Um, So yeah, I think that uh, I would agree with you. I don't think that Technology is the panacea for all of our educational problems, but I do think that if we look at how much the world has changed due to technology, Mm -hmm. um, or at least the Western world that we're living in, right, um, we don't see those same kind of dramatic changes inside of our educational institutions, Mm -hmm. right? And so there has to be some kind of a catch. Doesn't mean it's a one-for-one one, that every student should be sitting behind a computer like everyone in an office is. What it means is that we need to make changes, and I'm not exactly sure what they are, but I'm, you know, certainly trying my my hand at different things. <laughs> uh, but we we can't continue to just have classrooms where it's 30 students, one teacher, mm-hmm. and a lecture. Yeah, right. It's it's not. Uh, it is not effective for the world we live in today. Mm.
0: I was wondering if you could speak a bit to how this transformation, um, in the, um, educational sector, um, is impacting the, the teachers, the ones that teach and their role within that complex student teacher relationship and
1: knowledge. That's a really good question. Um, I think you're going to find that it varies dramatically from country to country. Um, I can really only speak to what's happening in the U S with that, mm-hmm. um, with knowledge that in some cases I think the U.S. is really far behind other countries. Uh, in this particular aspect, I, I think that education as a, as a major and as a career choice is something that has been attractive to people who are afraid of technology and don't necessarily want to engage with technology. Now, I'm not speaking for all teachers, of course, mm-hmm. but it's been attractive to a lot of people who have that feeling. And because of that, they've been really hesitant to adopt technology in their classroom and on top of that, the fact that they've been pushed into using technology by administration or school boards or whoever that might be, that isn't really appropriate for what they need in their class, because they know what they need in their class more so than maybe someone else. Yeah. Perhaps they should be given a menu rather than be directed that you yeah. have to use this yeah. specific smart board, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they underutilize the technology in many cases. Mm-hmm. I have walked into many classrooms that have you know, two, $3,000 smart boards up that are just used as projectors. That's the only thing they're ever used for. And it's, it's a waste, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then I also see that the administration inside of our public schools changes pretty dramatically, even year to year in some school districts. And with each change in the administration, you know, the, the principal who comes in wants to make their mark and make their change. And so the teachers asked to dramatically change all the technology and directives that they have in the classroom. And they're struggling under the weight mm-hmm. of all this. And they're not necessarily technology people to begin with. Right. Yeah. So yeah. it makes them hate it more. Yeah. Understand. So So I think that um, I think it's a huge challenge. And yeah. I think that I mean, we have to change things within um you know, our teacher training and our education programs to really make that difference. Mm. I mean, one of the biggest problems with implementing computer science in New Zealand in United States all over Europe is that we don't have enough teachers to teach it. Um, because it's, if you are actually qualified to teach computer science, a lot of times you can go have get a job that pays you twice as much as teaching. Yeah. Right. So it's pretty tough to get people to teach that topic. Um, well,
0: coming back to, to, to just technology itself, I w- we wanted to ask you to speak a bit more to, to the gender topic. Um, mm-hmm. And I think this is something that has been, uh, especially in New Zealand, a very important topic in the last years, uh, providing access to women in tech and especially providing access to women in tech very early on through education. And one of the challenges that, that is around that topic in New Zealand is, one, the fact that the educational system, the public one, is not really prepared to do that um, yet through, via the curriculum. Um, and also, secondly, the culture, right? The stories that we tell little girls around, you know, doesn't make tech such an um, exciting field to come into when you are five or six or seven or eight as a, as a little girl, so um, there are a few organizations that are trying to disrupt this space, but I was wondering if you could speak to your own experience of, of, of this space from the U.S.
1: Yeah, I mean, we certainly face the same challenges in trying to get women into technology. Um, and it really starts, I mean, we, we see the big break off uh, around middle school, which is really, we see the girls are leaving their interest in science and technology um, between the ages of like 10 and 15. Right? That's when they're making this decision that they don't really think of themselves as a tech person. And so there's been a number of interventions that have specifically been targeting middle school girls and get them interested um, or keep their interest, maybe is a better way to put it. I think that um, one of the biggest challenges that we face, though, is these young women are making the choice not to go into technology, not so much just because they don't understand what mm-hmm. technology can offer And not because they want to be a princess. Um, (laughs) I mean, I'm certain there's probably that. But I think a lot of them who are really making this choice are are sort of making a smart and informed choice. They see that when they go into their um, technology classes that the teacher overlooks them. They Mm -hmm. see that the male students dismiss them. They see representations in the media where the males are completely dominant in a technology space and women are secondary. And they're making in in that way, it's an informed choice. I mean, I think we often are like, oh, they don't know enough. They don't know enough. I think maybe they know too much. Yeah. They know that actually working in technology is really hard for women, right? There's a lot of issues facing them. There's issues facing them of just general sexism in the sense that people don't think women can be as good at, at technology. In particular, I have lots of Evidence in computer science, so there's there's that issue. But then there's also this issue that when you're a woman in technology, especially if you're a young woman in technology, you are one of a much smaller minority in terms of the dating game. So um, you get hit on all the time, mm-hmm. and that can really actually be distracting and challenging from your work. Um, you want to come in and talk about your work, but the the men that you're working with only want to talk to you about going out for a drink after work, right? And it doesn't leave you to do that kind of networking that is important for developing in your, your career in addition to just being difficult, right? So I think that we I think that a lot of the approaches we're taking to sort of disrupt things with young women is really focused on young women and trying to teach them more things mm-hmm. and maybe we actually need to be teaching other people things so that young women can make an informed decision that says that actually working on technology is a good thing. I actually think most of it's going to fall on college professors and, um, on industry. Mm. Right. So as far as I know, women in tech, most of them don't want to work for companies that have had these terrible sexist scandals come out over the past year. They're really trying to avoid those companies Um, they may take those jobs if it's the very best offer they get, but they're going to be taking Mm -hmm. them with the idea that they can leave soon. Um, So if the industry actually wants to change that, if they actually want a diversity of people at the table, Mm -hmm. if they want to make sure that they have a pipeline of individuals who are trained, which means you have to include a whole population rather than just Mm -hmm. 50% of the population, um, they're going to need to change the way that women are treated within the workplace. Maybe just culture of the workplace yeah
0: do you see some of these businesses approaching um your space to kind of try to um, learn more about it or try to collaborate more in that
1: respect so i see companies trying to do things i think the most of what they're doing is they're really still working on funding small projects to do outreach Mm. um like with middle school girls for camps and things like that. And I don't want to discourage that. I think that's all great. But I think that fundamentally, if they want to make a significant change, they have to look at how to change the culture of their own companies. And Mm -hmm. I'm not, I think that there is, you know, diversity training and sensitivity training and those kind of things that happen. I'm not sure if those things are having a big enough impact in the way that they're implemented today to make that change. But I'm trying they, to be very politically yeah. correct here. Yeah. I don't want to offend anybody.
0: I was just thinking. <laughs> I'm not
1: really seeing it. now.
0: I'm just <laughs> thinking about um, the the topic that we were talking about at the beginning, which is how we, um, about diversity and inclusivity in the actual product that is being designed oh, yeah. as a commercial output, right? And it it could be that. Like the company can just look at that and say we can't have a diverse, powerful story if we don't have a diverse, powerful team behind it.
1: I mean, I even think about things like the iPad. When the mm. iPad came out for two weeks in the computer science department at Georgia Tech, all of us were making jokes about maxi-pad computing, right? I mean, <laughs> that's where our heads went first. None of the guys I talked to thought about that. Yeah. Right. Um, and I just wonder... I assume they had women on that team and involved with naming it, but I have to wonder if they felt empowered enough to say yeah. something.
0: But you, right? you you still think that this kind of, you, you st- think that this kind of, um, there, there hasn't been made that economic link between the two. The yeah. fact that successful products in technology in gaming wherever they come from a successfully diverse team behind it because who is going to use it is that world that is out there that is extremely diverse so in order to have a, a good product and drive revenue and money for the company you need to have that diversity there inside as well
1: mm-hmm. so
0: that link is still um, not that strong right
1: i think that intellectually that many people mm-hmm. that are high up in most of the large technology companies understand that. Right. Yeah. But I also think they, they are looking at this saying we're making tons of money with the products that we're developing and everybody's using them. So we don't necessarily need to change. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe they don't if their only concern is really just with increasing the profits. Um, I think you see some companies that have started to recognize that they've reached saturation Hmm. and to actually build up what their product, where their product can be sold, they have to build up their product base. And that means tapping into markets that aren't, that aren't currently using their product. Um, So that is one way in which I know that companies have been doing, you know, using anthropologist and, Mm -hmm. and trying to work to diversify their understanding of the world around them and how people use technology.
0: Yeah. And, and I know this, this is a topic that it's kind of quite difficult. I mean, cultural change in its essence is very difficult. So mm. it, it's not something that you could um, intellectualize and change from one day to the next um, mm-hmm. because it ultimately boils down to, you know, what is the fabric of our lives and the patterns that we've chosen to live those lives and we feel comfortable within them. And changing that is not necessarily something that people naturally want or like to do. So I was wondering if you what would be an advice that you would have for a company which is in a position where intellectually they've realized, okay, we need to do something about this diversity, um, but they don't know how to start. What would you say to something, somebody like that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that I would, I would, I think most of the companies are trying to do things in terms of hiring a more diverse population. Uh I think that even if someone is sitting at the table. If you have a diverse population of people sitting at the table while you're coming up with ideals for a product or anything else, you're going to come up with more innovative ideals. Mm -hmm. Everyone will not because that one person or that other person came up with an ideal, but because everybody sitting at that table is having to look at the problem from multiple perspectives Mm -hmm. because they see those multiple perspectives in front of them. Um, I think that actually, so hiring a diverse population improves everybody's, Innovation, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that um, though getting that diverse population is a challenge. Um, you know, I was recently talking to a student who got hired at Microsoft, and she was told how lucky she was that she would have never gotten that job if she wasn't a black female, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and she's just as qualified as yeah. the man who was telling her that, right? and she probably did in part get hired because she was a black female. She, that was one thing that set her above mm. because she was bringing a diverse perspective to things and improving mm. the diversity of the team. And she was like, I can't believe he doesn't understand that, mm. but that, that may be the piece of education that has to happen, yeah. that we have to have students start to understand that so that they can go out into the workforce pl- um, with that knowledge. Mm. Right.
0: And I think also like for the people that are, you know, on the other side to actually experience the value of that different opinion inside the discussions. Because it's one thing to bring those diverse people at the table, but another one to encourage diverse conversations to actually happen, you know? Because that's mm. that's a hard one because once they see the, the value of that um, diverse opinion and not just put a number on it and say, you just got hired because of it, but actually I don't believe the value is actually there,
1: you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. that that's, And there's, fear of expressing themselves is this problem too. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. it's not us against each other, it's us together building something that's good. Um, but that's it's very hard to, to bring that into the workforce immediately because it comes with a bag- baggage of how we've treated one another for a long time. Um, and you know you can't just from one day to another switch that that rapidly. you know like those kind of maybe more difficult conversation um, need to start happening. For people Mm -hmm. to start building that foundation of trust that goes even beyond um, these different identities, no? Like, do I trust you to work on a project with you? Um, And then based on that trust, how do we have those conversations that are maybe a debate, that are maybe, you know, accommodating different points of view into something that ultimately is more powerful? But you can't have that with, with not having trust. And I think... We we had um, another speaker in a different context that was talking about how important it is to have the same people in the same team for longer, you know, to not have that rotation um, happening super fast because that doesn't allow people to build trust or to even know each other deeply enough to feel comfortable with one another Mm -hmm. um, so that they go beyond the title that they have and they just start discovering the human. But for that to happen, you need more time. And, you know, now in the the industry game, it's all about shortening that time and, you know, climbing faster and faster up that ladder or um, um, and that what uh, what it amounts to is working
1: with a bunch of strangers all the time. No. (laughs) Yeah. Which can be challenging and, you know, it's uh, you end up attracted to and be befriending the people who are like you first yeah. yes right? exactly
0: exactly and then that makes prevents for those diverse discussions to actually mm-hmm. happen um yeah i think i think i i'm absolutely loving this conversation but i think your our time is
2: almost up so thank you again um i'd also like to let alice's night the links to your work and whatever you'd like to share will be on the
1: episode yeah super enjoyable thanks so much for a good conversation i really it was fun
0: thank you for listening everyone follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speakers work join us next time for more interesting conversations